All right, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Elections Weekly. Uh, happy to be back this or be back this week for you guys. Uh, this week we've got, as usual, Dylan Wade and Joe Szymanski, and we've got some interesting topics to go over this week. Uh, it's <laughs> surprising week, surprising day in politics, as you all know. Um, so basically on our docket, we're going to be discussing the recent debacle in Minnesota's 2nd Congressional District, uh, some of the new polling that's come out recently, and uh, briefly go over some of the Supreme Court stuff that's been going on. So I guess we'll start off with uh, this whole Minnesota 2 uh, debacle. Um, so the the uh, Marijuana Reform Now Party, which is a major party in, in uh, Minnesota, thanks to winning a certain amount of the vote in the Attorney General race. Auditor. Their can yeah, auditor race, sorry. Uh, their candidate died. And apparently under Minnesota law, what this means is, is there will be no general election for representative for Minnesota's second congressional district. Uh, what's instead going to happen is that the, the people will have the ballots and they'll be cast, but no no ballots will be counted. And instead we'll have a special election in February. So for some reason, um, they're going to be a couple months late in having a House representative from the 2nd Congressional District. Uh, this law doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It was created um, after the death of um, Paul Wellstone, presumably to give Democrats and Republicans a better opportunity to uh, have an election if something like that happens. But I don't think anyone conceived that the legal marijuana now party <laughs> be a major party and that this would result in the uh, in the uh, in the end of an election. Um, practical considerations are the general conventional wisdom, given this just happened, seemed to be that this could maybe help the Republicans a little bit because this is a this would be after the election, so it would be the first. Assuming Joe Biden wins, which he's favored to win, this would be the first House election after the. A presidential election. So Republicans can, in theory, win the swing state seat, which Trump did win last time, if I recall right. Um, but it's just a very strange situation overall. So what are your guys' thoughts on on what is unfolding in this uh, in this saga over there? So I have a lot of conspiracy theories about this. Um, <laughs> but I think it just kind of boils down to this is what happens when you let states make their own election laws. You get really <laughs> bizarre things like this, where a candidate who probably wasn't going to get above 5% of the vote has now thrown the entire delegation into a bit of chaos. And if the dominoes fall exactly right, potentially swings the, the presidential election. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because that's a factor here, because Minnesota has eight congressional districts currently. It's five to three. If Colin Peterson wins and no one else loses, which is a predictable outcome, it'd be four to four. Um, in the event of a split electoral college vote, that means it goes to the House and the delegations vote, um, which means that if uh, there's no representative for the second district, it goes from a five to three Democratic advantage to a four to to a four to three, uh, if I recall right. Yeah, mm -hmm. Republican advantage, which means Republicans could swing Minnesota because House election was held. Um, there are actually people who are insisting Democrats were not happy this guy was on the ballot. They they thought he was a Republican plant. Um, that's just typically the charge whenever there's one third party on the ballot, and it's typically associated with an issue. And so mm -hmm. the the charge was that this was a uh, plant candidate from the from the right. But given he's dead, um, that doesn't seem to be an, an impact at this point. Um, might yeah, I the just, entire situation is strange. I mean, yeah. Might I just say, if he was a plant, this was some real 4D chess. 
<laughs> this is like eight dimensional chess if that's yeah, the case. This, is, this is some crazy yeah. level stuff if, yeah i mean obviously it is very sad this guy died but there was also no chance he was going to be winning the seat that's the problem here is that this you're canceling a race for like a guy that was going to win like maybe maybe at most five percent in a good year like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense yeah i mean this is this is just another one of those things that feels like it keeps happening in 2020, right? It just keeps happening. <laughs> 2020, every everything just random. And not only that, I don't know why why all the why all the fun stuff has to happen in seats where I interview candidates. Mm. I interviewed the GOP candidate uh, for this district, Tyler Kistner, back yep. in July, uh, and, and now suddenly uh, neither him nor Angie Craig would be seated in uh november i mean we we have this yeah. seat rated as likely democrat uh craig is a very good candidate for this seat uh you know she's she's kind of got the exact type of background that you need but now suddenly this throws everything into a real conundrum here um mm -hmm. specifically because uh obviously it's just kind of right after the election uh that's not terrible uh for the democrats uh, you you could certainly argue if it was a couple months later say like in a March or, or like in April or May, this would probably be worse for them uh, just because mm -hmm. that's a little bit more after the election. You know, the Biden administration have a little more time to be doing things. Uh, but I think this does at least shift the race a little bit. It's going to be happening in the middle of February. Uh, you're going to certainly probably expect to see lower turnout in that case. Uh, I would think in a district like this, theoretically, that would probably help the Republican Party. I think that is something that is fair to say. And I think it's fair to say, too, uh, Tyler Kistner is not a terrible candidate. He is not a bad fit for the district by any means. He is a young former Marine, is a, you know, young family just, you know, from the area. You know, that's that's a guy who can, you know, do stuff for Republicans in a suburban seat that is trending away from them. Mm -hmm. uh, and wasn't he actually out raising Craig for a while or at least he, as he the did last out raise Angie Craig in the third uh, quarter, which is kind of why. Uh, I took a look at the seat because it's like, hey, you know, this guy just suddenly outraised an incumbent. Uh, nobody really expected that. So Kistner is not mm -hmm. a terrible candidate, and I would actually argue he probably fits the district better than uh, former Congressman Jason Lewis did, uh, who was a, one of the you know former conservative talk ra uh, talk radio host guys, mm -hmm. uh, very socially conservative. You know, kind of got lucky uh, in 2016 in this seat. So you know, I, I would certainly argue that Kistner might even be a better fit than Lewis was for this seat. So it's going to be really interesting now. I think it's definitely a seat that's going to have to come onto the radar now. I certainly wouldn't label the seat a toss-up yet, but I would certainly potentially now uh, change – I would change my rating to it for Lean's Democrat just because now we're going to have to see it forced into a special. Uh, for now, I mean, of course, lawsuits and things, that could change everything. But for now, if we're going to see this race go into a special – for me, that makes it a Leans Democrat race now because that, that throws a lot of things in the wiring. That makes a lot more things less sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's now it's certainly going to be one to watch that we have right after the election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely something no one was expecting. Um, I think they're going to probably change this law, I would assume, uh, after this whole debacle. Because really, um, I don't think anyone wanted this. I don't think any of the candidates were like, you know what? I, I like this move. I think we should do this. Like, cause even if they win, they're going to lose several months. They could have spent getting on committees, uh, building up, you know, uh, relations. They'll be a couple months behind all the other freshman congressmen or congresswomen or representatives, whatever, whatever term you prefer. But also, the, the district will be out representation for a few months. 
Um, and honestly, like they're gonna be. I mean, they're still holding the election. They're just not telling you who won. Like that's the weird thing. Like they're gonna count all the votes. They're not taking the names off the ballots. They're they're just not counting the votes, and they're not going to name who who would have won. It's a very odd situation. Which, if I'm not mistaken, this law was put in after Paul Wellstone mm -hmm. died. Yeah. Um, but the way you're describing it does not fix the issue that was caused by Wellstone's death. Um, yeah, it if doesn't. If you're simply <laughs> delaying the results, that doesn't fix the problem. Yeah, it's a very strange... Uh, it honestly doesn't make any sense. No. <laughs> I mean... I mean uh, it you know, it's uh, it's very interesting uh, that you know this this has happened for sure. I mean, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have certainly expected it. I don't think anyone was going to expect this to happen in a house race. Always expect, mm -hmm. always expected. It. It's twenty twenty. Always, expect. always expect the unexpected in politics, right? Always expect yeah. the unexpected. Uh, but you know, uh, it's certainly certainly really interesting to watch, and certainly really interesting to see. So uh, yeah, you know, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to watch now. This is, I I don't think this is a seat like I said that was on anyone's targets, but now it's gonna come on the dashboard now as something that I think both parties are gonna probably want to put money into, and something that both parties are gonna might want to spend into just because of how weird it's gonna be. Yeah, I mean, this is a district. I mean, obviously, this is a this is a district in the Minneapolis area, Twin Cities, southern suburbs of southern and kind of uh, eastern suburbs of of uh, Minneapolis. It's, it's a narrow Trump district. It's not, yeah, I mean, it's one that's kind of shuffled back and forth historically between parties in terms of who's won. It's one that'll um, probably flip to Biden. Yeah. I mean, it, it wouldn't be surprising. It was only, a, it was only a Trump by two seat. Um, and it's obviously suburban, it, although given the Trump strength, you know, doing all right in Min Minnesota, I mean, he's probably doing better there than Wisconsin, I'd say at this point, but even still it's, it's an unusual situation. I would think it would probably be I'd rather be in the situation Kistner in terms of who this benefits more, mm -hmm. but I don't know if it's enough to win the seat. No. Um, it, but the thing is, it's also competitive. I mean, if, if, if we already know it's Biden presidency, Republicans may be more motivated to turn out, especially in a February low turnout election. So, you know, who knows? Yeah. Though if this is the first domino to a 269, 269 electoral college, um, may I just say that's perfect for 2020. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> there, there's nothing more. Yeah, there's nothing that would annoy everyone, including myself, more than that, and that's very on brand. Yeah, and to be for neither candidates come out and said anything about the election. Other, I mean, about this, other than obviously that they're they're sorry for uh, for Adam Weeks, who was the candidate and his family, um, which is probably a good move on their part. I I, I expect there will be lawsuits about this because it's arguably unconstitutional. I mean, to just say we're not going to we're not going to certify the winner. Um, not because of fraud or because of anything else, just because we don't want to. The law says we've just decided we're not going to certify races where a candidate dies within 79 days of the election. It's a pretty arbitrary cutoff, all things considered. Um, yeah. it, it's, I mean, there are better alternatives, right? I mean, you had uh, Missouri, where you had uh, Mel Carnahan died, and his wife uh, ran in his place. Um, that makes – I mean, it was appointed governor, I believe, after, after the fact. Um, that makes more sense than something like this where they're just like, election canceled, sorry. Like, what if this is a gubernatorial election? Like, what happens then? I mean, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> no, like, I, I want to talk to whoever wrote this law, uh, who wrote this law, <laughs> because I, I, I just, I need to know what they were thinking. 
it's it's so flawed in so many ways that should have been thought of ahead of time. Like obviously the, the entire point was that if a major candidate dies, the race is going to change. I guess they set a threshold too low. Maybe it should have been fifteen percent. I know that's that's past the point where the Independence Party typically was getting. They were getting you know anywhere from ten to fifteen percent in a lot of these races. But one elect, this is a problem I have. One election does not make you a major party. Getting five percent of the vote in like one random election doesn't mean you're better than any other minor party, or any major party for that matter. Maybe it's the major minor party distinguishing here. Um, I don't. know. It just the entire thing is boggling. It's it's mind boggling. Uh, a crystal ball moved the race. They were like, I don't. They're like, we're moving it to toss up, and we're also moving it to vacant. <laughs> it doesn't. The the whole thing um, is just bizarre. Um, yeah, this isn't a toss up. It's definitely yeah. well, not. no, it was a toss up in the sense that they don't know what the result is going to be. Oh, um, like like we can't rate this race because there's not going to be a race. I don't know. It's I like... feel like they need their own rating for uh, I don't know non applicable. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you would. I mean, nobody thought of this scenario because I mean, honestly, I don't think anyone other than the person who wrote this law. Uh, has an idea what this thing is so but yeah huh. i think we've gone about all we can over this we'll keep you posted we may put an article out on this um if we can get the legal stuff straightened out because honestly this doesn't make any sense <laughs> all things considered yeah we um, have to be missing something yeah it's uh very very strange um but yeah so in other news um obviously over the weekend uh, uh ruth bader ginsburg uh supreme court justice uh, passed away she this was unexpected. Um, it was, it's kind of set off a frenzy. And at the moment, what it looks like is that Republicans have the votes to confirm narrowly. The justice they appoint is expected to be Amy Coney Barrett. Although uh, some in the Rubio camp and in Florida in particular are pushing for Barbara Lagoa. Um, it seems to be Amy Coney Barrett though. He's the only, she's the only one that Trump's interviewed. She's been named. She's been a potential candidate for the last two vacancies. Um, she's definitely someone conservatives will like. She's someone who seems to be broadly liked by all conservative factions. You have everyone from, from, you know, federal society, hardcore libertarians who like her stance on, on, um, you know, um, qualified uh, what's immunity. Called? Yeah. Qualified immunity. She was skeptical of, th of that. You've had uh, social conservatives who are, uh, who like her background, uh, who like that she's not from an Ivy league school, um, and who think she may be more favorable to them on some social issues. Um, and you just the basically she, she seems to be someone who all Republicans will like, and at the same time, Democrats are not inclined really to like her, even to the extent you know of a Gorsuch or a Kavanaugh, who are certainly uh, more amenable on a judicial level, I would think, to some Democrats. They were they were certainly picks that were not drawn to be firebrands. Uh, Kavanaugh became an, a fire, you know, became a, a rallying point unintentionally. Uh, he's, I mean, both him and Gorsuch are frankly kind of the Jeb Bushes of the judicial realm. Um, there's not really a whole lot in the record that's that's severely conservative for lack of a better term. I mean, obviously I they're mean, textualist, they're originalist, but I you would can see both of them. Yeah. Sorry, Sorry. I would actually make the argument. I agree with you on Gorsuch. Um, he's fairly non, he's non-controversial for a Republican justice. I would sure. make the argument Kavanaugh's somewhere between Firebrand yeah. and Gorsuch. The problem with Kavanaugh is that specifically there's, it's similar like Merrick Garland, right? Where Merrick Garland, uh, ironically, Justice Gorsuch is probably to the left of, of Garland on a lot of issues of government power. Uh, Kavanaugh is more in the Garland camp. So he's someone who, if you're if you're a Democrat who likes executive authority, who likes um, 
that who likes having more power within the government branch. He's not someone who's going to be hardcore like Gorsuch or Thomas in that regard. So obviously, like with a lot of Republican justices, it's difficult to define narrowly. But what is known for sure is that Amy Coney Barrett would, would be the most conservative Supreme Court justice, probably since at least Scalia, maybe Thomas. Um, that's without a doubt, I would think. Yeah, I would, I would certainly argue uh, that Amy Coney Barrett would probably be uh, the most conservative justice, I would say for sure, uh, since uh, Clarence Thomas was uh, put on the court. I would say that uh, just with just with their standing and just with their opinions on precedent and, uh, you know, certainly in uh, executive power, I would certainly say that she is probably one of the most uh, concerned. Again, I would say the most conservative justice that would be nominated to the court uh, since Clarence Thomas. And obviously Thomas himself went through a very uh, uh, rough confirmation hearing. Uh, he got through in the end. But uh, we could probably see the same thing here for Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, but if it, mm -hmm. if it somehow ends up being someone like a Barbara Lagoa, uh, you know, Lagoa, I'm sure is con I'm sure would probably be considered much more moderate than Amy McConey Barrett. Uh, she would certainly be a little bit more of a wild card, uh, just because, mm -hmm. again, like you mentioned, Eric, you know, people have been hyping up uh, Barrett as any potential a potential Republican Supreme Court pick. You know, since the beginning of the Trump administration, you know, she's been yeah. someone who's been talked about for a long, long time. It's been known for a long, long time that uh, if if there was someone that the Republicans would want to uh, replace Ginsburg, it would it would be Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, obviously, mm -hmm. I, I don't think this is the time period, maybe, or the way that they maybe wanted to do that. Uh, but this yeah. is the way it happened. Well, this is the way it's going to go. Uh, it certainly looks very likely uh, once the pick is announced in le basically less than two days now, uh, if you want to count full hours. But on Saturday, when the pick is announced, uh, it certainly looks like whoever it is will will be on the court before Election Day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, there's very little doubt at this point that Republicans will be unable to confirm her, not just because she's broadly popular among Republican factions. I think not even even Murkowski at this point has come out and said she doesn't think they should confirm a justice, but she wouldn't be opposed to Amy Coney Barrett on print or to any Repub Trump justice on principle. Basically, she doesn't want to vote on a nominee, but if she had to vote on a nominee, she's not necessarily going to vote no. Uh, it's about as squishy of a non-answer as you can get. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's an I answer. Mean, college is a confirmed no. College is a confirmed no, as far as I know. Yeah, um, that Murkowski answer is the one I would have expected from Collins. Yeah, well, Collins. I mean, to be fair, people don't realize people go after her judicial record. Yeah, she's voted for all the Republican justices, but she's also voted for like every Democratic judge and justice ever. Like she just like she just votes for as long as there's not an, like an ethical problem or uh, some sort of truly extremist problem. She's not going to vote against your nominee, whether you're on the right or left. Obviously, right now with Republicans in charge, that looks pretty bad for her race uh, in May, which is expected to vote for for Hillary Clinton, and she's now an underdog in that race to be sure. Um, even like Mitt Romney, people were expecting basically the rallying cry like before with impeachment was you need just need four Republicans. If you get four Republicans on board, um, it makes everything easier. Well, they 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 can get maybe one at most. That's not yeah. enough when you have when you have that four vote barrier. Um, and to be honest, like there's aside from her stances and aside from her religion, which I think, I mean, we're already seeing people fall into this trap already where they're going after her on religious grounds 
for not even for connection, just for not even understanding the basic tenets of religion. I think I put a running bet in one of my chats as to which news network is going to be the first one to confuse the kingdom of God with a literal physical kingdom instead <laughs> of a metaphorical, you know, kingdom of, of all believing Christians or what, or like I, I've already put bets up on that. So um, that's what Republicans are hoping for, obviously, is rather than going after her record, which would certainly be very conservative, Democrats take the low hanging fruit, which is that she's a practicing Catholic who has a lot of kids and went to a Catholic school um, oh. and is involved with, with organizations that are, that are associated with that. Um, most seem to not be taking it. I think Mazzy Hirono is the most likely to take the bait. Um, but it, they basically got a public embarrassment, I think, generally speaking, in the last hearing, at least in Republican circles. Uh, they would be wise not to repeat that. Um, there are ways that could go after her, especially on issues like abortion. Um, but Republicans are hoping they focus on other things. Um, yeah, I I don't expect this hearing to uh, actually be all that controversial. Um, hmm. I, I kind of expect that Democrats are adopting the approach now of we can't win this battle. So let's save our political capital for the court packing battle. Yeah, um, that may be the case. I mean, even to be fair, um, the re resistance to Gorsuch was mainly just proving to their base that they just opposed him. Uh, it wasn't particularly bloody. It wasn't particularly brutal. Aside no. from doing a filibuster that was doomed mm -hmm. to begin with and everyone knew would fail. Um, they really didn't resist his pick at all. Uh, Kavanaugh was not being resisted at all until the allegations, um, unlike Thomas, who was being resisted on ideological grounds before uh, before the allegations. So that wouldn't surprise me entirely. Um, it may be the best play, actually, is to just let this go through um, and to just say, yeah, we let you guys have your justices. Now we're going to appoint two because we want two justices. Like, I mean, who knows? The, the court is a wild card at this point. I think it's kind of revealing a problem with the court, which is that um, it's kind of weird that we're setting it up where octogenarians are just dying before elections and that's flipping elections. Um, that's really yeah. strange. Like, I mean, to even go over people, David Souter is not young or not David Souter. Uh, Stephen Breyer is not a young, young individual. Um, he's not, uh, I mean, he's been there for, yeah, he's, he's, he's old. I didn't realize he was that old, but, um, Sonia Sotomayor has, has diabetes. If I recall right, she, uh, she has a legitimate health issue. Um, any of these could cause problems. Clarence Thomas is, is elderly at this point as well. Um, it's generally been assumed he would retire during a Republican presidency, but it seems like it may be a Ginsburg situation um, where he just kind of holds on until can't hold on anymore. Um, I mean, yeah. I'm not in favor of port packing or anything, but there are reasons for people to be concerned um, about the situation as a whole right now. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if at some point, even on a bipartisan level, retirement ages come up at some point. Uh, like a lot of other judges or a lot of other things do, if it's in a situation where it wouldn't hurt either party. That's well, the problem at the moment is any, any, any plan at the moment hurts Republicans. The moment that it's politically neutral is when you start getting some, some adjustments, I think. Yeah. I think that I'm also not quite sure how I feel about court packing. I think it's more of a, when you don't have any good options, uh, you're looking for the least bad. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but like if the filibuster is the nuclear option, court packing is the thermonuclear option. Like it's just, it's just. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, on principle, I don't know how much I love the idea of unelected justices having lifetime appointments and being able to decide every law in the country. Yeah. 
I think, I mean, honestly, this is where I hope Democrats ultimately adopt the Republican approach of textualism. There are a lot of textualist uh, judges that are actually liberal. Akhil Amar is a, is a big one. I mean, obviously, he's, he's up there. But the, the tradition of textualism didn't start with a conservative. It goes back to Hugo Black, uh, who was a, a very liberal justice. Um, that's where a lot of uh, textualists trace their tradition. So if that were to be the case, where we just go to a point where like the t- the idea of this being a super legislature is done, I think this would make these fights a lot less um, brutal. Um, yeah. But at the moment, it's I mean, it's a six three majority we're talking about. Granted, there's been worse Republican appointed majorities before. Uh, when Dave uh, David Souter was being appointed, that was eight of nine justices that were appointed were appointed by Republican presidents. Democrats just got lucky that three of them were liberal. Um, <laughs> like they're not that lucky this time. I don't think they have the votes to repeal something like Roe v. Wade. If you look at the the decision was put out earlier in the year, only two justices were even open to repealing it, which was uh, which was Gorsuch and uh, and Thomas, if I recall right, or Alito and Thomas, one uh, one of the two. Yeah, Gorsuch um, being one would surprise me. Yeah, during his libertarian leanings. Yeah, I don't think it was Gorsuch. I think it was Alito and and and. Uh, and yeah, and and Thomas obviously. Um, that's three votes. I've heard some people even go further and say Griswold is at risk. I would say that's even. I don't think you get a single vote to go go against Griswold at this point. Oh. Um, just just the can of worms that would open up would be. Forgive me, Griswold. Uh, Griswold versus Connecticut. That's the case that originated the right to privacy. Oh, okay. not the right to privacy of abortion, but the right to privacy in a generic sense. Then has since been expanded to other things. God, um, like birth control, like abortion, but also. Uh, pri- like you know, search and seizure, uh, that sort of thing. That's that. And if if Amy Coney Barrett's any indication, if that's the type of originalism that what that means, she doesn't support it. She's talked about how true originalism would mean you get rid of West Virginia, uh, you get rid of all sorts of things. And he's like, yeah, that's not realistic. We're not going to do that. So and I, mean, I think there's a degree of pragmatism here. Yeah, and you know, I feel like any single time, you know, especially in modern history, you know, social media and everything, you know, every time we go through a court battle. You, you feel like there's this rhetoric. Uh, obviously, it's come from the left a lot because they are the ones, uh, the right, the, the Republicans are the ones who are appointing the justices. But, you know, like, you know, oh, they're going to appoint this justice. And, you know, now this is in danger. You know, all these precedents are going to be in danger. But one of the key things for any, you know, per, you know, any person who gets through to the federal court system is that, you know, precedent is one of the most taught things to lawyer, to lawyers and to eventual judges. Preston is very, very important to these people. And I think we've seen it time and time again, even throughout this court, even throughout this year, that, you know, certain, you know, old cases have taken precedent to other things. And, you know, kind of the idea is like all these apparent, you know, all these old 50s and 60s era decided cases are going to go down. Uh, I, I generally believe those fears to be unfounded. You know, I understand... If someone like Dylan would be concerned when it would come to, you know, a new case being decided, I could I could understand maybe some concern there. If you would if you would not like, you know, a gun rights case being decided in the way that you would like it to in this day and age. But I, I generally think the fear over 50, 60 year old cases that were decided, you know, mm-hmm. under the Warren court, you know, I, I generally think those fears are unfounded because, you you know, we've seen cases unless they are inherently, you know, racist, the big ones being, you know, Dred Scott and Plessy versus Ferguson are the two that we've really seen overturned in this lifetime. You know, mm-hmm. those are the only two really. 
Yeah, even yeah. on the Republican side, the cases that were that were ruled in favor of, for example, um, the gun rights case, that was not going over any existing precedent because there was no existing precedent really in the Supreme Court in terms of guns. It was creating a precedent. Um, yeah. You look at, for example, the, the ruling on the Civil Rights Act. That was controversial, but that was also there was no existing um, there was no existing you know single landmark decision. So most of this court has been under the under Roberts has been existing precedent generally holds. If there's not existing precedent, then he's open to change. Obviously, if he's not the fifth vote anymore, uh, that's a problem. And you start seeing things, I think, cases like Kelo uh, versus uh, would, would become one that might be reviewed. Uh, and I think Gorsuch and, and Thomas in particular would be really interesting in revisiting that one. But that's a recent precedent. That's 2005. Right. Uh, I really don't think we're going to be revisiting the Warren court at this point. Um, no. The time for that was the 90s. And mm -hmm. uh, Republicans failed in the 90s at, at doing that. So... Even on abortion, I don't think Roe v. Wade would entirely be repealed. I think you build off of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, if, like just from a judicial conservative standpoint. Roe v. Wade allowed late-term abortion restrictions, third trimester, um, generally, and some things. Planned Parenthood versus Casey pushed it to viability uh, as, as the threshold. I think any case would build off of that precedent and maybe establish it to second-term limits, uh, any sort of other things, but within that framework, right? Um, because that's what's ultimately been built upon. That's where it's actually trending. If you look at the case law, even like the partial birth abortion decision, I can't remember the exact case name at this point, but that was built off of from Justice Kennedy off of what he had decided in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Um, that's what I ultimately think it boils down to is, and I get, you know, for Democrats, it's been a, a windfall. I think it's up to 200 million, 230 million in act blue money at this point, which is just, God, insane i mean it's I, I'm, I'm not saying that it's a bad thing i'm saying it, it's truly phenomenal the outpouring of um of sentiment on this and not just sentiment cash um i mean this is certainly going to help people out um i am in, i i do like on a personal level that people are invested in what the court is deciding at this point that people are paying more attention to the court to what its powers are and to reconsidering even some aspects of it even if i don't agree with them i do think it's this is a, a branch of government that people deserve to to know about I think a lot of people couldn't tell you all nine justices on the Supreme Court at the, at the moment. I, I would hope that would change after this. Um, people realize this is a branch of government and it's important. And you should help in part. You should decide some of your votes based off of if you care about these issues, vote on them. Um, because the senators have authority on this. The president has authority on this. If you want things to change, you, you use your vote. Um, on a personal level, I like that. I like that people are paying more attention now. Yeah, I agree, I agree with that. I agree with that. Yeah, I do as well. And I agree that I don't think we're going to be going back to really old precedents and changing mm -hmm. things. Um, but as Joe said, yeah, I'm a little more worried about the current precedents that could be. Correct. Set. Yeah. The uh, current ones, which there could easily be expansions. You could have you could have expansions off of off of uh, D.C. versus Heller to expand to prohibit assault weapons bans. You could have a precedent going off of the uh, the right to work decision, maybe extending that into private sector. I think that would be pretty controversial, but you could build off of that's the sort of stuff you could build off of here. Yeah. Um, I mean, and ironically, none of this is stuff that social conservatives are really going to care about. They care about Roe v. Wade and to some degree Obergefell. I don't think either of those are going anywhere, especially Obergefell at this point. Um, no, Gorsuch um, is just is not open to that at all. No, um, Gor I believe Roberts was also with Gorsuch on yeah, that. I believe it was yeah, six yeah. three. So I don't think that one's flipping. Yeah, at all. Um, and, and to some degree, the court does consider, um, obviously, as a matter of public opinion for some of this stuff. Uh, 
I think you have to go back to the Warren to the to the Warren court to find where the court was just like just just doing stuff that a lot of people didn't like at the time. Um, that was just completely out of the political mainstream. Um, death penalty repeal, um, some additional criminal justice stuff, even Roe v. Wade to some, to some degree. Um, so as a practical matter, I kind of agree with Joe. It's kind of a little bit overrated in terms of existing precedent, but I absolutely get the concern. And I think it's a good thing people are paying attention to the powers the court has because uh, it's a lot of power. A judicial review is a really is the ultimate power in this country to some degree. Um, if yeah. they decide to rule on something, I mean, and, short of the state just deciding not to follow it, um, which we already had a civil war over that, um, there's not really much yeah. recourse there. Which, again, I think is kind of antithetical to the founders' intent of there being yeah. no supreme authority. Oh, it absolutely was. It absolutely was antithetical. But at this point, again, you're not going to be revisiting the J the J court decisions. Um, no, I, I, I mean, I'm arguing in ideals. Sure. In I think there's a lot of conservatives who would agree with you on that. I know a lot of conservatives who are, I mean, who just on a per, uh, they don't like. Um, we've sort of seen this with some of these nationwide stays in circuit courts, where a court in another part of the country issues a nationwide injunction. Um, rather over something when really it should just be either appealed up or it shouldn't even be a federal concern at all. Um, I know conservatives have cared about judicial review, but again, it's not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> you've literally built up two centuries worth at least of precedent based off of this. Um, we're in an English common law system. It doesn't happen like that. You, no. you don't just overturn 10 years of precedent usually, not even 200. I mean... <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I totally agree. And honestly, I don't even know if, if I did more reading, maybe I'd agree that it shouldn't go anywhere, but sure. I don't know. Yeah. Well, that was the J court. Mostly that was uh, John Jay mostly asserting his influence as part of what was initially the weakest branch of government. He's like, well, I want to be the strongest one. That was actually the federalist maintained a degree of authority. He was the only real, I mean, beyond John Adams, he was the only nationwide federalist of any import, you know, after the, the Adams presidency. Mm. Yeah. Shall but, we move into polls, my guys? For uh, for sure, that's a good discussion, and definitely uh, leave comments or, or you know mention this on um, you know reply to our comments on social media. Would love to hear your thoughts on this as well. Um, I think we're getting to a point now where it's a little bit more open to talk about the political angle, but obviously here at Elections Daily, we're going to maintain respectful. Um, we don't go into the the hardcore partisan stuff, so we're not going to be approaching it from that angle as we as we breach the subject in the future. But polls, we had a lot of polls today. Um, some of yeah. them were good for Republicans. Some of them were not, uh, specifically Texas. I know I've been hearing rumblings about this for a while. The Democrats were kind of losing a little bit of steam in the, in the Sun Belt and gaining it in the Rust Belt. And what's seen is specifically Texas looking better for Republicans. Uh, both of the Georgia Senate races seem to be all right. There was that data for progress poll that showed Warnock out in front. And I don't entirely discount that poll. Because they've been fairly accurate in Democratic primaries, not in perfect, but fairly accurate, um, and so it's not possible. It's not impossible. Democratic bases coalesce behind Warnock, um, but you had these polls out of the Rust Belt as well, which looked pretty good for for Joe Biden, especially in Ohio, um, mm -hmm. which people thought was kind of long gone um, at this point. Now, at Elections Daily, we've had Ohio for quite a while as a toss-up. Um, in fact, I'll actually pull up our election ratings to give you an idea of where we see things, and I think. Our ratings have, in time, proven to be pretty prudent. Um, there's not a whole lot of decisions I think we've made that I would say have been, um, without looking back on them, that I'd say we're wrong. We've had Texas as a toss-up for most of the cycle. 
We've had Ohio as a toss-up, uh, if you look at the ratings right here. Uh, current toss-up states, Texas, Iowa, Ohio, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. If I had to put in order of these which ones Trump uh, looks worst in, it would be probably Ohio and Iowa in that order as being the top yeah. two of these yeah. that most likely to go for Biden, which is kind of surprising, all things considering. I mean, people talked about a blue Georgia. We talked about a blue Georgia, uh, blue Texas. Uh, Florida looks actually good for, for Trump, fairly good for Trump. And North Carolina is just not Florida's where Democrats want it to be. Florida's um, I would say, Florida. <laughs> yeah. I would say like part of this is that North is – People have kind of underestimated how diverse of, of states the, the Sun Belt is compared to these Rust Belt states or these Midwestern states. Uh, for, for I mean, for lack of a better term, Iowa is a very white state. It's a very ethnically hom homogeneous state. It's easy to have trends one way or the other. It's the same thing for Ohio. There's obviously a sizable uh, African-American presence place like Columbus and, and Cincinnati or Cincinnati and, uh, and Akron, um, Cleveland. But by and large, it's still a pretty – a minority. Most of it's predominantly white. Uh, there's not going to be a whole lot of cultural divides. Whereas in North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Texas, these are big states, not just big geographically. They're big in terms of population. They're big in terms of regions, media markets you have to compete in. Uh, I mean, to give you an idea of this, Jamie Harrison, who is running in South Carolina, is running ads in the Charlotte media market, which is like four counties in South Carolina. These ads are going all the way to Boone, North Carolina, which is on the border with Tennessee. Um, like this is the the diversity we're talking about here, the number of media markets and the number of uh, just the amount of money you have to spend. It would not surprise me at all if a hypothetical scenario where we just see all of these light blue states, except for maybe Pennsylvania, uh, go Democratic. Iowa and Ohio go Democratic. And then one of these three, one of North Carolina, Georgia, Florida, go Democratic, but the rest are stay Republican. That wouldn't surprise me at this point. I don't want to speculate too much, but what it's looked like is that Republicans are bouncing back in the Sun Belt to a degree and losing ground specifically in Wisconsin, Ohio, Iowa. Uh, Michigan looks all right. Pennsylvania looks all right, but that's more of a Northeastern state. Honestly, Ohio is the big concern here. The numbers are, I mean, we had two polls out today showing Biden ahead in Ohio, uh, one from Fox News and one from Monmouth, I believe. Um, you can't discount these polls. These are pretty good pollsters. Um, it's not like change research coming in and saying that the, the libertarian Indiana is getting 20% of the vote. These are actually good pollsters that are paying attention to these states now. Hey, hey, I'm sure Holcomb is at like 30%. <laughs> Look, but yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to say this here though. And, you know, we kind of saw this in Iowa and Ohio though, with their two gubernatorial elections mm -hmm. in 2018. Mm -hmm. Democrats, Fred Hubble and Mike, uh, Mike Cordway, uh, Richard Cordway, excuse me, uh, both led within the final couple of polls by similar margins mm -hmm. uh, in their in their upcoming months, in the last couple of weeks and months. But what happened in the end was we saw Kim Reynolds win by three in Iowa and we saw Mike DeWine win by four in Ohio. So, you know, I, I think that there's something to be said, you know, obviously 2018 is a midterm. That's very different. Obviously, if Trump only won those states mm -hmm. by three and four, four points, that would be bad news for him still, because that means he is still pro he is not reaching his same margins. He's led to six to seven points would basically be what it is. Yeah. So he, he would be losing he would be losing margins for sure in those states. Those would not be good for him. But I, I don't think either of these polls are to say, well, now maybe we can say Biden's favor in those two states. I, I would I would heavily plead caution on that right now. 
uh, just because of what we learned, what we see, and what we saw in 2018. You know, the the polls missed Republicans in Iowa and Ohio a little bit in, in 2018. Uh, these they were certainly still close races for sure. Uh, and mm-hmm. I cer- I would certainly still not outlay the possibility of Biden winning in those two states. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think I think we have as analysis, you, you know, we got we got to we got to tread caution, I think, a little bit here, you know, with with how we see these states, how we remember them. I, I do agree with Eric, though. I do think that Republicans in the Sun Belt have seen I wouldn't say a boost, whether it is more just the, co- the coalescing of the usual Republican vote. Yeah. Uh, I feel like certainly that Republicans, at least those who are undecided, have certainly started to come home. I certainly think you've seen that in Texas. I think you have definitely seen that in North Carolina. I think North Carolina in recent polling uh, has been uh, the most clear in that, in that uh, Republicans have coalesced uh, back to mm-hmm. Trump. And I would say even among Tom Tillis, you know, those who are undecided have coalesced back to Republican candidates. To some degree, to some degree. Yeah. Certain, to certain, yeah. Not to some degrees, but certainly to certain degrees, uh, yeah. if you want to average it out, you know, Republican, yeah. maybe it's not a boost, but they're, they're certainly starting to coalesce, which is giving them this boost and is mm-hmm. certainly making them look at least better than what we maybe fought, you know, back in August and July. Yeah. yeah and keep uh, in mind, Republicans don't need any, Democrats don't need any of these toss-up states. If they just win the states we have as leans Democratic, heck, they could even lose Arizona. They would have an electoral college majority. Uh, this is 280 votes. Arizona, I believe, takes that to uh, 279. You could even lose Nevada or one of these states at that point. And with our totals at the moment, um, they would still have a majority of the electoral vote, or at least 269 votes. Um, so it's like these these purple states are important, but they're not the true battlegrounds right now. If Trump wants to win, he needs to win Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, places like that, Arizona especially. Um, where polls have just been looking worse and worse for Republicans to a degree. It, Arizona just seems to be the state, you know, it seems to be the state where I would almost say it, it, it's it's maybe the second most likely Democratic flip right now. I'd say I'd argue maybe over Michigan, maybe Michigan being number one. The fact that we're putting the fact that you could theoretically put Arizona over Wisconsin and Pennsylvania right now as, seat, as states that could flip back. To, to Democrats, you know, Barry Goldwater's war, r- rolling in his grave right now, to be totally honest. <laughs> yeah, but I believe Dylan wanted to say something earlier about um, before I got into the, the toss up stuff. Yeah, sorry. Um, I was just going to say, I haven't seen the same coalescing around Tillis that I have around Trump. Um, it's been some of the polls say there's coalescing. Some of them say there isn't. I'm not exactly sure if it's a methodology problem or or what, uh, but it's, it's been spotty. That's why we're still, we still have it as leans democratic. We don't have it as a toss up yet. Um, I think at some point it might go back to it, although it's more likely to jump straight to leans R if something like that were to happen um, because we're not really, we're getting rid of these toss up columns. I think we're going to lose uh, just as a spoiler, maybe one of these toss up states in the next update. Um, so like there's, there's a degree of caution with North Carolina. I think more, it's more to the degree in Georgia, specifically around Kelly Loeffler or Kelly Leffler, sorry, who has really uh, stolen Doug Collins's lane. Obviously, you had the Attila the Hunt ad, which uh, say what you will about it, it's funny and it got attention, uh, it, which it, that it, ad firm seems to have uh, majored in in attention. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. very off kilter, um, very uh, very attention grabbing. Also, yeah. 
I like that in the same graphic that has Kentucky as safe R, we have an ad for Amy McGrath. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, if we're going to talk about Senate races here, I think if there's anyone, if there's any one Senate candidate who was more than happy today, uh, it's David Perdue. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. if you're looking at polls today, I think David Perdue is very, very happy that polls are looking like that uh, in the mm. recent days. Uh, they so they show him outrunning Trump. They show him beating Ossoff right now by six or five points. Yeah, yeah. It, David Perdue is very, very happy with today's polling results. Obviously, this is still a lean RC, but some people were looking like maybe this seat could become a toss up. I think recent polling definitely shows that it is uh, most certainly a lean RC. Uh, Purdue is certainly still favored. Uh, I think, I think at, on the Republican side, uh, he's probably the big winner. Um, yeah. I mean, I want to say Republican candidate who's won on the Senate side over these past couple of days of the polling. I would certainly say David Purdue was one of them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Ossoff underperforming, I'm shocked. He's never done that before in Georgia. <laughs> and, yeah. and, you know, I think that they showed uh, favorability ratings, right, too. And, and yeah. for a guy who's never hold office, held office before, John Ossoff has surprisingly high unfavorability ratings. I think it was actually the same as David Perdue. They both had, I think, 38% uh, unfavorability ratings. Yeah. So, so, so you Which have to wonder if, if there are still, you know, because of how high profile – and how much money was dumped in that 2017 special that he eventually lost uh, to Karen Handel in 2017 in Georgia's 6th District. You you know, you got to wonder if some of those wounds are still there. Uh, I I would certainly say, you know, I could be misremembering this, but I believe believe he was still at – for a guy who's never held office before, to to hold a 38% disapproval rating, uh, that's something that has to be – that's something that kind of caught my eye as something that – you know, I think that has to be a little bit concerning for the Ossoff campaign. Yeah. And I mean, on the other side, you know, um, we've we've had that race as likely are for a while. The, the possibility of a lockout seems to be diminishing, but it's always there. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, honestly, like uh, Warnock has started to spend. The, the campaign between Warnock and Lieberman has kind of been brutal in terms of people basically just begging Matt Lieberman to drop out. So there's not a there's not a you know, there's not a lockout situation. Uh, even if he, I'm not even sure if he drops out if it's possible because it could go to another candidate, um, another one of those two candidates. But um, what's really fascinating to me is how Leffler has not only overcome the political problem that was mentioned earlier, she has cast herself as the most conservative candidate in the race, the most conservative senator. And Collins seems to have basically just had to abandon that message. That was his, his initial campaign is that Kelly Loeffler is a weak, spineless suburbanite. Um, and whereas I am the true conservative and the true Trump supporter, Kelly Loeffler goes out there, votes with Trump 100% of the time, um, literally, and uh, is like, well, you can't do that anymore. That was Collins' plan. That was the only thing he had because his legislative record honestly isn't impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, he, his district isn't particularly notable in terms of anything. And it's it's quite telling the reaction to the Attila the Hun ad was not to contest that Kelly Loeffler is the most conservative senator. It was to present that Attila the Hun was a genocidal uh, maniac who killed Christians. Um, <laughs> like, like it, it, that's what's telling us that he's not like, well, she's, she's lying. She's not the most conservative at this point. He, he really doesn't have a lot to go on her at. So if Republicans are coming a lesson around her, he can't run as the moderate. Cause he's not a moderate. He doesn't have the record of a moderate. Um, uh, I don't know what path there is left for him to be honest. Um, yeah. To get through the primary. No, I, I completely agree. Um, Collins, I think, was the favorite when uh, mm. when Leffler's scandal broke, but 
she seems to have oddly been able to overcome that. That's a failing on both the Warnock, Lieberman, and Collins campaign. Um, everyone, uh, Tucker Carlson was the only one that tried to take her to task on it. Like <laughs> Everyone dropped the ball on that. Um, good job, guys. Um, but Warnock has finally started campaigning, and my belief that on paper he was an incredibly strong candidate has seemingly been solidified by the fact that he just started campaigning and he's already pulling in second, third, and in a couple polls, like we mentioned, first place. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, I mean, the data for progress poll is strange, but throw it into the average and it still shows sure. Warnock is going up. And yeah. I mean, you can tell the Lieberman campaign is nervous because now they're framing themselves as an outsider to uh, <laughs> the Atlanta power brokers, which is yeah. a very strange tactic. I mean, that's what, ter- that's what uh, I believe Joe who was another candidate that was running against um, in Ossoff. Teresa Greenfield. Yeah. Uh, no, Teresa Greenfield is in Iowa, right? You're right. You're right. Uh, no, yeah, uh, was, I know who you're talking. The mayor, Teresa Tomlinson. Yeah. Tomlinson. Teresa, Teresa Tomlinson. Tessa Tomlinson. Yeah. Teresa Tomlinson or whatever her name is, Tomlinson, she cast herself as the as the anti-Atlanta candidate, and she did very well outside of Atlanta. The problem is she did terribly in Atlanta, which happens to make up almost a majority of the state's population. This is about as wise as casting yourself as the anti-New York City candidate or the anti-Chicago candidate. Um, it's At this point, I mean, it's really not a wise idea, um, but there's not a whole lot of lanes left open for him, aside from you know consolidating the white vote, I guess. No, um, and it's a very Joe Kennedy move to call yourself an outsider while being part of one of the most powerful modern political dynasties. For sure. Um, but let's go over some other Senate. I think we've gone over you know that as well. North Carolina, there's really not much to be said here. Neither candidate is doing a whole lot to make positive impressions of themselves. Uh, depending on which poll you look at, the race is either even with Trump or a little bit behind Trump or very far behind Trump. We don't know. Um, uh, Maine is... Uh, it's looking worse for Susan Collins for sure. Uh, Mi- Michigan is kind of a sleeper at this point because uh, Democrats just dumped, uh, they're dumping more money into Michigan at this point than any other state. They just dumped about four and a half million dollars into, into Michigan. It's not that the polling is bad. It's they can't seem to put Peters away or they can't seem to put John James away. Uh, Peters has had a large polling lead for most of the campaign and it's narrowed um, mainly. It's mainly because he's, he's winning back Trump voters or he's winning over them. Whereas uh, Peters is just, is polling fine, but he's not been able to solidify this ratio. They really don't want a repeat of 28, uh, 2018, except on a scale of instead of going from a, a double-digit loss to a 6.1, where it goes from a six-point loss to a win. Um, yeah. Um, John James is surprisingly recovering. Gary Peters mm-hmm. is a very generic candidate, um, yeah. as the NRSC keeps trying to remind us he's, he's um, scrappy but he doesn't have a whole lot to distinguish himself from i mean you couldn't pick him out of a out of a lineup of senators like no i mean he's he's only a, I mean, he's a meme at this point he's less of a I, I don't want to be too too mean to the guy but he's not well known at this point he's been he's a senator he's been a senator for six years almost and he's running a senate campaign and he's doing fine he's leading but people are just voting for the democrat they're not voting specifically yeah. for gary peters He's the Democratic Tom Tillis, except Tom Tillis can't win his own base. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair. I, I don't hate yeah. that comparison, but I think yeah. kind of if if you've been watching Michigan polling over like the past two months, really the big thing that you can see here is that Peter just kind of stayed stagnant at around fifty, at around 
excuse me, 48, 47, 46%. Well, James only grown from around the low, from the high 30s to now the low to mid, to now we're starting to see the low 40s. I mean, I believe even in that data for progress poll, uh, I mean, the those progress- He's only down five. Yeah, he's only down five. Uh, and, and you would expect those polls to be, you know, tilted slightly in favor, you know, towards the Democrats just based on, you know, where, where they're coming from and everything. Yeah, you know, it certainly wasn't Kansas where they had Trump up by four statewide. Like, to give you an idea of some of the other ones, the other polls looked fine. The Kansas one was weird, but that was definitely striking from that poll. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, again, we data for progress, while they have certainly been very good at Democratic primaries, uh, you could you, I, they have been untested so far at the mm-hmm. general election level. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, like Dylan said about, uh, you know, the Warnock poll being in the lead. The same thing with this one. You throw it on the average. But yep. on average, uh, John James is not going away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and if if he outruns Trump again, you know, he outran Bill Shute by, I think, about four points. Mm-hmm. If, you know, he outruns Trump by four points in a general this yeah. year. You know, that's that's a toss-up race. That is, yeah, I mean, I know that I know that on a, on a, we we cater a lot to the election Twitter brand, and I know on election Twitter, the Michigan is a toss up. Michigan Senate race is a toss up thing. Has kind of become a meme in its own right. Mm-hmm. But if we're playing cards like that, you know, if if James somehow ends up running past Trump by four points, that does mean that Michigan, by all means, is a toss up state. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the yeah, if you look at the national polls, even like apparently, literally, as I was just we were just talking about this, Emerson released a poll which had Trump up by (laughs) Trump down by three. Some people call them Memerson. They have an A minus from the five thirty eight, but that's a little bit less than warranted. Um, But like, it's it's more consistent with. I mean, being down by five, that's more of a winnable race. There's still not any evidence that James is outrunning Trump with any significant group. Um, For example, the Wayne County. Or the, the Detroit Chamber of Commerce endorsed a Gary Peterson re-election. John James is, of course, from Detroit. He's a notable businessman in the area. Um, I mean, he's made Detroit a big a big message part of his campaign. But if I were Democrats, I would be. I think their skept their money throwing here is warranted, to be sure. Oh yeah, um, they're not putting James away, mm-hmm. um, but I. I hear what you're saying, Joe, and I agree. It's probably closer than it was a month ago, but we can't assume James is going to outrun Trump by four points. Sure. Um, so I would be very hesitant to call this a toss-up, right? Definitely. Now. I, and, I mean, and I'm not. I'm. I. I. I'm not. I'm just saying that. I'm saying in that hypothetical that sure. if if John James was was at, let's let's he he outruns the less popular. Republican top of the ticket again, uh, you know, Bill Street in 2018, Donald Trump in 2018, mm-hmm. Trump will probably not lose Michigan by as much as Shoot did. So hey, I'm just putting out a hypothetical there. Yeah, sure. or, here's, or here's another one to put it this way. Out of all the Republican Senate candidates that are in competitive seats, who is the most likely candidate to outrun Trump by any margin? Uh, it would probably be either uh, Cory Gardner, who is not in a competitive race, or John James. That would be really the only two, I would think, out um, of all these that are Susan in a situation. Susan, well, Susan Collins, yeah, but Maine isn't a competitive state at the presidential level at this point, right? They're not contesting Maine. Whereas to some degree, they are contesting North Carolina, Georgia, 
um, Montana to some degree, Iowa, Texas, um, John Cornyn there. He's in the upper tier of candidates, basically, is what we're looking at. And Oh, sure. He's not, he's not showing the evidence of the crossover votes he's need, but he's, he's shown enough to not be counted out, um, which Democrats had a chance to take him out. He was polling low. There were some controversial comments he said privately about LGBT issues, uh, which they could have hammered on. They didn't. Um, like, there's not been a whole lot they've gone after him for, which uh, is kind of, in hindsight, a uh, especially when Republicans were not contesting Michigan, were not spending ads there. Seems like a missed opportunity. Yeah. Um, but to go over, yeah, to go over a few other of the toss-ups real quick, just so we, we don't miss them, is Iowa is an enigma. Um, poll from the buzz we're hearing is that both Democrats and Republicans think Iowa is less competitive than polling shows, and meaning it's more favorable to Republicans. Polls have been pretty good for, for at least for Teresa Greenfield. Um, but the buzz on the ground doesn't seem to match the polling, if that makes any sense. And, it's it's in a weird situation. There are more polls of Iowa that came out today showed uh, Ernst running behind Trump. Uh, for what it's worth, if if Trump wins Iowa, Ernst probably wins. But we've, again, we're not seeing evidence that he's going to outrun him. And then Montana is an interesting one because Bullock's kind of fallen behind there a little bit. Um, we moved it to toss up fairly early, and Bullock led the first five polls or was tied. He tied in the first one, I believe, and then he led the other four. Since then, there have been five polls over the last two months, and he's not led in a single one of them. Um, and it seems like that's a race in particular that should be getting more attention. Um, but it's really kind of seems to have solidified into somewhat of a lead for Danes. Um, whether that's enough for him to hang on is unknown. But those are the two toss-ups we have. Um, we may see changes there at some point in the future, uh, but we've narrowed it down to these two as the probably the pivotal ones for Senate control. Because if you look at our map right now, well, you notice here, 50 Democrats. Um, that total is pretty big, but a 50-seat majority is basically useless. It's enough mm -hmm. to get you the committee heads. It's enough to get you procedural votes on things everyone in your party agrees on. But as the previous Republican Congresses have shown, even a 54-seat majority can be hard to corral. 50 seats with a vice presidential tiebreaker is not enough to pass the sort of legislation Democrats want to pass. For that, they need 51 or 52, preferably probably 53. Um, but at this point, if Republicans hold Iowa and Montana and all the other races here go accordingly, Senate control goes to the vice president's party, um, which I don't think is a scenario anyone wants, to be honest. I think you'd rather be solidly in a minor, even in a 51 seat minority, 52, 51 to 49 seat minority. Uh, you're not in a position where it's just, it's just so awkward all the time. Um, you need complete unanimity in favor of, uh, of your party. That's just a, a strange situation to work with. I think. I agree. I, I, I know we're running out of time here, but I just want to point this out to anyone who's watching. And then you guys, did anyone else see this Ogden and Fry poll of Illinois third congressional district that came out yesterday? It's a GOP internal, but this is really weird. This might be the weirdest internal I, internal I've seen all year so far. Is it the one that had Newman only up by two? Yes. Marie Newman, <laughs> GOP internal. Not only it, it has Marie Newman only up by two. Uh, I think I, it still has. I think it still has Trump losing the district by a, a decent amount. Yeah, he lost like fifteen last time. Um, I think so. by like eleven here. Ooh, that's actually not outside the realm of realm of possibility. By ten, 
I mean, throw it in the average, but yeah, Newman's, this, this, Newman's this, not going this, anywhere. Whole sure. I've seen though all year. This is the weirdest internal I think I've seen all year though. Yeah, it's that's certainly weird. Actually, I wouldn't discount the possibility if future polling shows there of, of a race like that being competitive. We've already seen races like that with I believe the tenth district, which alternated between a moderate Republican and a moderate Democrat for our Bob Dold and uh, and Brad Schneider before kind of settling on Schneider. Um, but the thing with that district is that it is predominantly working class. It's only a it's only a Hillary plus fifteen seat, which that's only. that's that's a big only, but that's basically roughly skews to what Illinois is, right? Um, and frankly, there are a lot of blue collar voters there that has this has the Chicago firefighters in it. This is where they all live. Um, this is the this if there's a district where um, in Illinois where you would expect Trump to make even a marginal gain, that would be the sort of district for it. The fact that the number is plus 10 is a little bit iffy. I mean, if you add it in there, that's plus eight. Um, that takes a district that would be safely for Lipinski and makes it into one that's a likely for Newman. But this is the sort of seat you watch in an off year, right? A twenty, a 2022. Uh, might I remind you, know, people who pay attention to Illinois politics know that off years for Democrats in Illinois can be brutal. Um, the Republicans won a majority of the House districts in 2010 under Democratic map. Um, they they won uh, a Senate seat in 2010. They almost won the governor's office. If they had if they had nominated a social conservative, they probably would have won that that office. And with that comes seats like this that are only D plus six PVI being a little bit more competitive. I would place a word of caution on this election, but when mm -hmm. you have someone who's hardcore progressive like Newman in a seat that's frankly not drawn to be like that, that wouldn't shock me if she if she underperforms a little bit um, as as gets the long and short of things. Um, and obviously it'll be redrawn next cycle. I can't imagine they'll keep that current, you know, keep that current arrangement because it was drawn specifically for. Oh, we lost Eric. Oh, well, we've had um, some issues with that. So hopefully we'll be back soon. But I know uh, once uh, there he is. He's sorry. <laughs> I was trying yeah. to screen share. <laughs> um, He's back. But uh, yeah, you know, weird things. I, I'm I'm knocking that down as a weird internal right now. Personally. Yeah, it's you know, a weird like, internal. Yeah, yeah. One of those I'm saying, I could, yeah. So I'm I'm knocking down as a weird internal right now. I know the weirdest one I've ever seen was when I think it had like Mark Callahan up by like 21 points or like 19 points <laughs> against Mark yeah. Bamba in Oregon's fifth last in last uh, last election. Oh, that was a Gravis poll. Yeah, that was a Gravis poll. But I think we're running out of time here, guys. So yeah. well, if yeah, uh, if everyone's fine, close. Unless you want to go over something, I don't have an issue staying a little bit longer. But if we all want to go off, that's fine. Yeah, I, I think, think we, we got covered everything. Up here. All right, sounds good then. So uh, thank you guys for watching this week. This is a good episode. Um, definitely appreciate your support. Uh, if you haven't already, like and subscribe to the channel. We really appreciate your support. Click the bell icon if you haven't already. In fact, make sure you click it to. Uh, not just click to subscribe, but also click that you're getting notifications, all notifications, not the um, not the personalized notifications, which in, in practice just they tell you a day later that someone uploaded, which frankly isn't very useful at all. Um, but we appreciate your support. Um, you can find us. You can find our social media handles in the description of the podcast or YouTube video that you're watching. Um, but with that, I think we'll wrap up for the, for tonight and. Uh, We'll see you, or we'll see you next week. Um, I think, or actually, yeah. no, we might not see you next week. I'll, I'll have to update you guys on the status for that. But, um, but thank you for watching, and uh, we'll see you next time. Okay, excellent.